Hello, and welcome to Doc Tell Me More, a podcast where I take an in-depth look at documentaries. My name is Mike, I'm your host, and once again, as always, I just want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to this podcast as I'm at, I believe, episode 13 already of Doc Tell Me More, and if you've Followed me from the beginning. I think you've noticed it was. It's been a little bit longer since my last episode. Um, I think for a while there, I was recording about one every week, just as time allowed. And it's been almost two weeks since my last episode. And I think as I've been able to set a, a schedule with work and family, I think about every two weeks is probably going to be about where I'm going to be going here on episodes and and. You know, maybe more often I am a teacher, and then in the summers maybe I'll be able to pop off um, some a few more often. But I think every two weeks um, allows me to really get some good um, research going, uh, as well as gives me time to record these episodes. So just going forward, expect about every two weeks to get an episode. Um, right now on, on Doc Tell Me More, we are in the middle of looking at Ken Burns' Civil War docu-series. I guess before I get into that a little bit more, if you're a first-time listener to Doc, tell me more. I say, first off, thank you so much for giving us a try. Um, But what I do in Doc, tell me more is I watch a documentary and I come on here and talk about it a little bit more in depth. I talk about topics that were discussed in those documentaries, but to a deeper level, or I talk about some things that weren't discussed at all. Just to kind of try to give the whole total story of the documentary. Um, And so my my first 11 episodes were Ken Burns' Baseball. Now I'm looking at Ken Burns' The Civil War. And we looked at, in the first episode of this series, we looked at essentially everything that led up to the Civil War. And also that first war, the Civil War. Episode 2 of Ken Burns' Civil War only covers the first half of 1862. So um, we really get an in-depth chance to really look at some things that happened in 1862. Um, So in this episode we're going to cover some uh, things that weren't, some battles that really weren't talked about at all in that documentary and maybe some lesser known battles in general that people don't know about. Certainly some, also going to talk about some major events that the documentary talked about as well. Yeah, I certainly encourage you to watch these documentaries. Um, if you get a chance ahead of time, but even if you haven't watched these documentaries, um, you can still learn something from it either way. And ultimately my hope is from this episode and this, um, podcast series is that you just get to learn a little bit more about, um, the topic at hand, which in this case is, uh, the civil war. So as we get in, so let's just get right into it here. Ken Burns's uh, civil war episode two, the first half of 1862. So just a couple of stats about the Civil War that um, I wanted to highlight that the documentary mentioned at, uh, at some point. Um, the, in the Civil War, the chance of, of dying in combat was actually 1 in 65, but the chance of dying by disease was 1 in 13. So you were much, much more likelier to die of disease than actually dying in battle. 1 in 10 soldiers were wounded. The average age of soldier, soldiers were 25 years old. Um, some as young as nine were drummer boys, and that just kind of blows my mind because I personally have an eight-year-old son who sometimes I don't know if he knows how to get his own food out of the, the cabinets. And so to think that there are nine-year-olds serving in the Civil War Army is just kind of hard for me to fathom. And there were 100,000 soldiers in the Union Army that were under the age of 15, so... Um, you had some pretty young ones in there. Um, the casualty rates, um, and this was something that the historian Shelby Foote talked about, um, in, I think towards the beginning and the casualty rates in, um, the civil war were really high and they were really high because uh, the weapons were had ahead of the tactics. You had some pretty big, um, just some, some pretty big technological advantages that happened that ended up causing the Civil War to be bloody because people still fought these wars like they were under the old technology. And one of them was the mini ball, um, which was the first projectile that was small enough to just kind of easily slide down a barrel. 
and but still maintain accuracy. So you could um, you could load quicker, you could load faster, you could shoot from farther away, and if it hit you, it really just kind of would explode. And so, um, and that's why there are really so many amputations in the Civil War. You also had more accurate rifles. And then towards the end, you had repeating firearms. So you, you, you weren't, you didn't need to kind of load a musket and, and, and shove the ball um, down into the, in, into the, the musket and, and pour some uh, powder in there. Eventually, you're able to get off a lot more shot, shots pretty quickly. And they didn't really adjust the tactics of, um, of battle there. Um, a couple other things. Um, he also, towards the end, he got machine guns, like the Gatling gun, that, that kind of started to make his appearance. Um, you had the train and the telegraph, which are huge technological advances at that time. Trains could send in um, uh, fresh troops to a battle as it was going on, and the telegraph could send messages quickly to soldiers. And so, um, again, you, it just you had all this technology... And but they still fought the wars like they were 20, 30 years ago. So you just had tremendously high casualties. And, and, and you know, I think Shelby Foote said in, in the documentary that if you had 10% casualty rates right now in a battle, people would, would be horrified by that. But they had battles in the Civil War that were regularly over 30% casualties. And it was, it was just a real shocking type of a war to, to people. So... Just kind of some interesting facts there about the Civil War as we start to get into here, the um, as we start to get into the actual battles here. But really, where, we're at, where I really want to get into first is is George McClellan, and uh, as I mentioned in the last episode, George McClellan was named the General in Chief after Winfield Scott retired. He was uh, given this honor after he won the battles of Philippi. And Rich Mountain, which is, I, I went over those last episode. And so then he was summoned east to build a human, excuse me, the Union Army um, in preparation for an attack on the capital of Richmond. Because people thought that if the Union could quickly occupy and, and take over uh, Richmond, then the war would be over. So George McClellan was sent to the east to build this army that was going to save the Union for... Um, Save the Union and win the war for the North. And so a little bit of background about George McClellan. Now, he was born in, in Philadelphia, and he was accepted into West Point at the age of 15. Now, this was significant because there was a minimum, minimum age of 16 at the time, and it was actually waived for him. And he graduated at 19 from West Point, um, second in his class of 59 people. So a great student. He was friends with future Confederate General Stonewall Jackson, George Pickett, and A.P. Hill. Um, and he served in the Mexican-American War under General Winfield Scott. And what he really learned was that he learned that flanking movements, or essentially trying to attack um, the enemy's sides, um, were better than full-on frontal assaults. And he understood the value of sieges. And so... Um, those were kind of methods that he wanted, he thought were um, beneficial. Um, he Something kind of interesting about him, in between wars, between the Mexican-American War and the Civil War, he was part of an expedition that found the source of the Red River in Arkansas. Um, he also was part of a crew to determine the appropriate route for the Transcontinental Railroad. Now, he picked a route, with, unfortunately for him, it wasn't really thorough, and he actually missed three better routes that were eventually used. And so I think this was a kind of a microcosm of him. Um, he, you know, I think he wanted to be right and wanted to get the credit, but maybe he didn't put it in the work. Maybe that's not quite right, but maybe he didn't put in being thorough enough um, to make the right decisions. Uh, he was an official observer of the Crimean War. And initially at the outset of the Civil War, he was named a Major General of the Ohio Militia. He was actually approached to join the Confederacy, but he was against secession, even though he was opposed to the federal interference of slavery. And he actually felt slavery was guaranteed 
by the Constitution. So that's kind of interesting. You have a guy that was heading up the Union Army who wasn't really against the <laughs> slavery. Um, he was rapidly promoted to Major General and was eventually only second to Winfield Scott. Part of that was his connections to Salmon Chase, who was uh, in the cabinet of Abraham Lincoln. And McClellan actually proposed Winfield Scott to take 80,000 men to invade Virginia or invade Kentucky and Tennessee. And, and Scott rejected um, those plans and pro proposed his Anaconda plan, which we kind of talked about the specifics of the Anaconda plan last episode. And, be, and the relations between the two became strained. Now, remember, Winfield Scott is considered maybe the greatest general in American history. And at this time, was probably considered the greatest general. Um... Um, and I think McClellan wanted that. And so when Winfield Scott rejected his plans, um, I'm sure that didn't sit well with McClellan. So anyways, like I said, McClellan was sent east to build the Army of the Potomac. And one of his biggest achievements that I think does get overlooked is that he, he did put order into the Army of the Potomac. Um, the, the morale was low after the first Battle of Bull Run. He was not part of that. But he did grow the Army from... 50,000 to 168,000. And Shelby Foote in the documentary said that the army that eventually won the war, that did all those great things, um, even you know, McClellan was a huge part in, in building that, and it was trained by him. He created defenses for Washington, D.C. that had 48 forts and 480 guns. That was huge when people were worried that the Confederacy would invade Washington. Um... The one thing that he really failed in is that he favored one great big epic battle to end the war. That was how he was going to end the Civil War. He proposed an army to, to have an army of 273,000. Um, and so I guess he, he thought that just having this large army would, would, would win it. His other downfall was that he constantly overestimated his enemy strength. He typically always had a two to one advantage in men over. Um, his opposition, but he always thought he was outnumbered. And he was very cautious, and that became his downfall. Again, his largest strength was keeping the morale of the troops up. His troops loved him, and again, this was a big deal considering that um, the Union had lost the first Battle of Bull Run. He did not have a great relationship at all with President Lincoln. President Lincoln was very frustrated by McClellan's inaction. Um, Eventually, you know, Lincoln had to kind of push him to, 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 to actually attack and go on a campaign. Lincoln had a plan he wanted to be to use, but eventually uh, McClellan proposed the Peninsula Plan. And Lincoln eventually approved it over Lincoln's own plan because he was just happy McClellan was actually doing something. So McClellan proposed this Peninsula camp, camp, excuse me, campaign, this plan. And what it involved was floating down to Fort Monroe, Virginia, and then he was going to advance up the Virginia Peninsula to Richmond, capture Richmond, win the war. And he left on March 17th in 1862 with 121,000 men and over 15,000 horses, which was the largest ever at that time for the U.S. Now, McClellan expected to face very little resistance early. However, he was tricked by the Confederate General John Magruder, who he did some deception and he made the Union believe that he was actually he was facing 100,000 Confederates. Um, and so in, instead of advancing, McClellan decided to dig in for a siege. Um, and this actually benefited the Confederacy as it allowed Magruder to bring in reinforcements where he eventually had 35,000. So the Union still way outnumbered the Confederacy. But had McClellan not waited so long, he could have attacked the, the Confederacy had a really small amount of troops. Um, the, the Confederacy eventually realized that their best option, instead of a, attacking and meeting this army there, um, was to slowly retreat to Richmond, which they ended up doing without McClellan realizing it. And actually on May 4th, they, the, the Union found out that the Confederates had retreated, and, and that really stunned McClellan. And so you'd see the Confederates kind of slowly retreat back to Richmond, but um, doing so in a way where, um, where they're trying to slow down the army a little bit, which, which allowed the Confederates to 
Um, prepare for battle. Prepare for Richmond. Prepare for the defense of Richmond. So one of the first major battles of the, of the um, Peninsula campaign, campaign was the Battle of Williamsburg, which is on May 5th. So like I said, the Confederates were retreating to Richmond, and they sent a small force to attack the Union Army to give them time to retreat. So the Union General Hooker attacked Fort Magruder, um, and he was actually counterattacked by General Longstreet uh, of the Confederacy, who almost defeated Hooker. But the hero of this battle was General Winfield Scott Hancock. So not Winfield Scott, but Winfield Scott Hancock. Um, he was actually named after Winfield Scott. And he was able to defeat the Confederacy in a counterattack. And that earned him the nickname Hancock the Superb. Um, McClellan hailed this as a great victory against superior numbers, which was, real, which was really false. I mean, it was false, excuse me. Um, the Confederacy just saw this as a way to delay um, the, the Union Army on their way to Richmond. Um, but this was kind of McClellan. Every, every battle he won was some grand thing. And, and, it, and it really, um, he won the battle, but it wasn't as grand as he thought. And so, um, eventually there were several little battles as um, the Union Army kind of slowly was trying to move up this peninsula to get to Richmond. Um, and this, eventually there was a really crucial battle called the Battle of Seven Pines, which happened on May 31st to June 1st. Um, so General Johnson of the Confederacy realized that he really couldn't stand a siege in, in Richmond. He wouldn't, he would lose that. And so he decided, um, that he was going to attack McClellan, take the initiative, which was, ended up being a good plan. But it was a little complicated and his orders were vague. The Confederacy was able to break some Union lines, but eventually they were they were pushed back and they withdrew. Um, and it was kind of a, a battle that was complicated because um, the U.S. claimed they won the battle because they defeated the Confederacy. But the Confederacy claimed victory because they halted the U.S. advance and they were able to fall back into their defensive works near Richmond. And so, at this point, McClellan had his peninsula plan worked out okay. He had floated down, he had worked his way to the peninsula, and he is now Richmond. And he did have a chance here to end the war. But really what was unfortunate for him was that um, the Confederate commanding general, Joseph Johnston, was wounded. And so then Jefferson Davis turned, into, turned the command over to Robert E. Lee. And so then Robert E. Lee took over as George McClellan was kind of on the doorstep hoping to take on Richmond and uh, in the Civil War. And that's kind of where um, things were at in the East um, as, uh, as, the, as the, 1860, the first half of 1862 ended. And so we'll talk about what happened next in the next episode. But uh, essentially what you need to know is that George McClellan is on the doorsteps of Richmond ready to hopefully in his opinion end the civil war um and so the union had some a lot of success there in the east in, in the early part of 1862. you know while this was going on um one of the most significant battles of the civil war um, which had huge ramifications for later um and, and just naval warfare specifically happened in the battle of hampton roads and that was against the uss monitor and the Confederate ship, the CSS Virginia. This happened in March. And so, um, at the beginning of the Civil War, the, the Confederacy had no Navy, obviously. I mean, the U.S. had the Navy. And so they were going to have to try to build a Navy to compete against just from scratch. Um, and the Confederacy really realized that they couldn't compete with the Union in terms of a quantity of ships. And so what they wanted to focus on is they wanted to make ships that were stronger on an individual basis. And so they made this ship called the CSS Virginia, which was actually made from the hull of a Union ship, the Merrimack, which was a scuttled ship by the U.S. And eventually um, it, it was commissioned um, in February of 1862. And it was um, an ironclad. So it was a ship that wasn't just wood. It was made out of iron. Um, 
which was which had been theorized before and talked about before, but no one had really um, put that type of ship out there before. And so um, it's it just, it just a, again, a new technological breakthrough in, in warfare. Now, when the U.S. heard that the, the Confederacy was making an ironclad ship, they decided they were going to make their own. And so they did make their own called the USS Monitor. And it was unique in that it, it only had two guns. Two large guns, whereas the the Virginia had a lot more had a lot more, but the two guns of the Monitor rotated around. Okay, so you could um, shoot from any angle you needed, and it, um, so each side had created a, an ironclad, and and they ended up meeting each other in battle on March eighth and March 9th. and. The Battle of Hampton Roads started when Virginia entered Hampton Roads on March 8th to attack the Union fleet. It, it rammed a ship called the Cumberland and sunk it. It then sank a ship called the Congress. Um, and then it ended up, the Virginia ended up retreating into um, waters, back into, into kind of the, retreated a little bit um, out away from shore. Um, with the expectation to come back the next day. Now, in that first day, they killed that the U.S. Excuse me, the CSS Virginia killed 400 soldiers and lost only two herself. Um, the Union lost two ships and also three were run aground. Um, this was the biggest U.S. Navy defeat actually until World War II, and it was done with essentially one ship. Although the Virginia was accompanied by three ships called the James River Squadron. So on March 9th, the very next day, though, the Monitor showed up. And then the two ironclads um, engaged in a lengthy battle. Lasted hours, neither gained an advantage. Um, some damage was, was done, but other, otherwise they, they, they couldn't, you know, the, the, the cannon, the cannonballs would, would just would bounce off each side. And so the armor actually held up pretty well. And so the monitor actually withdrew for a little bit when the commander was injured. And so the Virginia actually thought that the monitor gave up. And so they left. When the monitor came back with a new commander, they saw the Virginia was withdrawing and thought that they were Virginia was retreating. So both sides ended up claiming victory because each side thought the other side actually retreated. Which So it's really more claimed uh, as a draw. Um, and so this was the first battle of ironclads and it drew worldwide attention. Um, the monitor became the prototype of future warships. And as the documentary said, every other Navy was obsolete now and other countries started to make their own, um, uh, ironclads. Um, what was kind of ironic about this, that neither ship ever fought again, um, as they, they, they kept each ship tra kept trying to get the other ship to fight in unfavorable conditions and they never actually fought again. Um, the Monitor sank in December of 1862 in a storm and the Virginia was actually eventually destroyed instead of being captured in May. And so um, the Battle of the Ironclads was huge because it signaled a new era in, in naval warfare. Um, but really, neither side won. Um, but it did make wooden ships obsolete. So in this time, um, you don't just have, um, you know, armies fighting to win the Civil War. You also have pretty famous figures trying to um, win the war on the home front. And when I say that, they're trying to get rid of slavery. I mentioned last episode that slavery was the cause of the Civil War. Everything that led to the Civil War was fueled because of slavery. And so um, during the Civil War, um, you know, you had certainly people in the North trying to save the Union, but you had other people that were trying to get rid of slavery. And so they were part of this abolitionist movement for the abolition of slavery. And they were trying to fight at home um, to make sure that slavery was abolished. And one of the great leaders of the abolitionist movement movement was Frederick Douglass. Now, Frederick Douglass's birth date was unknown. It could have been February 
1817 or 1818. He eventually picked Valentine's Day as his birthday because his mom used to call him his little Valentine. Now, Frederick Douglass is important because he was born into slavery. He was of mixed races, Native American, African, and some European. Um, he was born Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey, and he later changed it to Frederick Douglass. Um, he eventually was sent to work in Baltimore for a family. He was eventually tutored by the wife of one of his owners before that owner disapproved. Douglas secretly taught himself how to read and write, and he ended up taught other slaves how to read the New Testament. Um, he was eventually set to a new owner who beat him constantly, and then he fought back and was actually never beat again. Um, and after failing the first time, he ended up escaping to freedom by hopping a train, um, dressing as a free black sailor whose identification papers he had, and he eventually made it to Philadelphia, which is an anti-slavery stronghold. It took him 24 hours, and he actually ended up getting married 11 days later. And then Douglas became a preacher. He became friends with William Lloyd Garrison, who was the owner or the editor of the famous Liberator, which was an abolitionist paper. He um, wrote his first autobiography in 1845, and some people question whether a black man could have produced such an eloquent piece of writing. Some, some people thought it wasn't actually... He wasn't even black because he could write so well. Um, he'd eventually produce three autobiographies. Now, people were concerned that his popularity would cause his former owner to try to come and get him back. So he eventually left the U.S. and, and went to uh, um, England and Ireland. And he was just absolutely astonished at how well blacks were treated. They, they were treated as equals over there. And eventually his British... British supporters raised money to buy his freedom, and he returned to the U.S. in 1847 um, after two years. Now, Douglas what, what was, um, obviously his story was huge to convince people that slavery was wrong and needed to be abolished, but he was also keen to the movement because he thought the Constitution could be used to fight slavery. Some people, like Garrison, was against the Constitution because they thought the Constitution was pro-slavery. They would even burn copies of the Constitution. Douglas, on the other hand, thought the Constitution could be used to fight slavery. Um, and he was actually um, an early supporter of women's suffrage. He would push for women's rights. Um, he pushed education. He was an early advocate for school desegregation. At the beginning of the Civil War, he pushed for black soldiers. But Douglas was just, a, again, a huge leader of the abolitionist movement at home. That As these wars were being fought, fought um, or these battles are being fought, he was at home because um, trying to convince people that slavery was wrong. And this was an important part of the Civil War. Obviously, the battles were important. But convincing people to fight, not just to preserve the Union, but to end slavery, was important. And would actually be, obviously, a, a tremendous important part of the legacy of the Civil War and ending the Civil War and eventually ending slavery. So you have, obviously, you have McClellan in the East that we talked about. You had the abolitionist movement and Frederick Douglass at home, on the home front. The other, another, the other major character going on in the Civil War in the first half of 1862 was Ulysses S. Grant and what he did in the West. Oh, it's funny because I laugh about the West. If I say the West right now, you're probably thinking, you know, California, New Mexico, Arizona, whatever. Now, the West is actually what we would consider, you know, the Great Lakes, um, you know, the south, Southeast, you know, we're talking about like Kentucky, Tennessee, um, you know, Mississippi or Arkansas, etc. But that was considered the West then. So in 1862, um, U.S. Grant, or Ulysses S. Grant, was a general, and his fame in the Civil War at this time included taking Paducah, Kentucky, on September 61. Now, a little bit of background about um, General Grant is he was born in 1862 in Ohio. His great-grandfather fought in the French and Indian War, and his grandpa was in, in the Revolutionary War. Now, he was nominated to West Point in 1839. His birth name is actually Hiram Ulysses Grant, but for some reason at West Point they put down U.S. Grant and that stuck. I think that's a much better name, U.S. Grant, than Hiram. That's just me. 
Um, he was considered an extraordinary horseman. He became friends with future Confederate General James Longstreet. He graduated in, in uh, 1843, 21st out of 39, so wasn't particularly a, a phenomenal student. Um, he served in the Mexican-American War under Zachary Taylor and Winfield Scott. And he served in Scott's March to Mexico City. So um, that was obviously a, a huge uh, impression on his life. He was breveted to captain, which meant he was promoted to captain for a short time before he reverted back to his original rank. Now, he was able to study the strategies of Scott and Taylor, and what he really learned was that logistics was important to victory, and that would really help him later on. I think one of the most interesting things he said about the Mexican-American War is he said later on, I believe in his autobiography, I was bitterly opposed to the measure, and to this day regard the war, which, which resulted as one of the most unjust ever waged by a stronger against a weaker nation. So he really felt the Mexican-American War was an unjust war where a stronger country, the U.S., took on the weaker country. And he really felt the Civil War was a punishment to the U.S. for the Mexican-American War. Now, he resigned in 1854. He was reprimanded for a drinking episode where he was caught drinking and... Um, he was told to either resign or turn his way, turn from his ways. He was caught a second time and resigned. Now, he actually later said that um, drinking had nothing to do with his resignation. And there's actually no official record that lists drinking um, as his reason. But he was dogged by um, allegations that he was a drunk. And... And this has been a reputation that, that has kind of followed him for some time. And there's a new book that came out by Grant um, in the last couple or on Grant in the last couple years. And there really isn't any evidence that he was a drunk. But for some reason, that reputation holds on him. And it goes back to this episode, which is a little bit foggy about whether or not he actually was drunk. But I, I don't know what the answer is, but he does have this reputation and there's not a lot of proof out there about it. So anyways, he did struggle for a time when, but he, um, after resigning, he accumulated some debts, but he did pay those debts off by 1860. At the outbreak of the Civil War, he was appointed as a military aide to the Illinois governor, and he mustered 10 regiments. And he was promoted to colonel and eventually general. And he was part of some key battles here in 1862. The first one was the capture of Fort Henry, which was in Tennessee. Now, Fort Henry and another fort, Fort Donaldson, were the only positions that defended the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers. And if those were taken, the invasion of Tennessee would be possible. So Grant was hoping to um, take these two forts. Um, he ended up dropping two divisions to take Fort Henry. Although eventually the Union boats then actually ended up causing the surrender of their fort as they just constantly bombarded the float or the fort excuse me grant actually arrived after it surrendered um ironically the fort got flooded two days later by the river and so the the union could have actually taken it without any fight because it would have been flooded but uh, the, still the fall of fort henry opened up the tennessee river and, and allowed the union to send boats down the river and destroy anything of military value so then that led to the Fort Donaldson, which after capturing Fort Henry, Grant moved on to capture Fort Donaldson. And General Hollick was a, a general in the Union Army who had rank over General Grant. And he initially tried to remove Grant from command as he had little confidence in him. He thought he was reckless. But Grant ended up having 25,000 men compared to the Confederacy, 17,000 men. And the night of February 13th, um, three inches of snow fell and the temperatures dropped to 10 degrees, which had, a, you know, had an effect, obviously, on the battle. You had some soldiers who didn't have proper clothing for this battle. Um, the U.S. tried to have a naval bombardment to uh, um, destroy Fort Donaldson, which did not work. Um, and the U.S. fleet actually got severely damaged. Um, although they did control the river. So 
Grant's army eventually did surround the fort. Um, on the 15th, the Confederacy attacked in hopes of making a hole in Grant's line to break out and leave. And this did catch Grant by surprise. Um, the attack was successful and it did open up the lines, but Grant was able to return. So Grant actually was visiting an officer who was wounded when the, when the attack took place. He returned. Um, the Confederacy kind of failed. It didn't take advantage of the situation and they retreated. Grant was able to control the situation by the end of the day. Um, and eventually the fort did surrender. Um, Grant said that there'd be no terms except for unconditional surrender. And that gave um, him the nickname Unconditional Surrender Grant. Confederacy lost over 12,000 men in this in this capture of Donaldson. And the surrender opened up the Cumberland River, River excuse me. Um, and Grant had captured more troops and all previous American generals. And so this was, these were really the first significant Union victories of the war. Grant was eventually promoted to Major General, and it ended up resulting in most of all of Kentucky as well as Tennessee falling under Union control. So just a huge victory for the Union Army early on in 1862. And then Grant kind of kept this momentum going, and this led into one of the more famous battles not just in Civil War, but American history. And that's the Battle of Shiloh, which happened at uh, Shiloh Church um, on April 6th through the 7th, 1862, which is in southwest Tennessee. It's also called the Battle of Pittsburgh Landing. So um, the Confederates lost those two forts, Donaldson and Henry, and that forced their general, Albert Sidney Johnson, to move his forces and base to Corinth, Mississippi, which is in the northeastern part of Mississippi, as it was a site of a major railroad junction and transportation link between the Atlantic Ocean and the Mississippi River, had connections with Memphis, Richmond, and Mobile, Alabama. And so Grant was ordered to send his army on an invasion up the Tennessee River, and he set up his troops at Pittsburgh Landing, Tennessee. Um, again, Major General Henry Halleck, who was in charge, sent another general, Don Carlos Buell, his army to meet up with Grant. And so Grant and Buell's armies were supposed to meet up, and Halleck intended intend to lead those armies to Corinth to um, defeat the Confederacy. So, however, um, General Johnston left Corinth to have a surprise attack on the Union Army um, before they could reach Corinth and drive it back and destroy it. Um, his attack was delayed by two days by a rainstorm. This had a huge impact on the battle. Because by the time the Confederates reached Grant, the rations were low. And on top of that, those extra two days that were delayed his attack um, helped General Buell reach Grant in time. Um, on the first day of the battle, the armies were pretty evenly matched number-wise. Um, and that was because Buell hadn't made it yet to Grant. Um, most of the Confederates had no battle experience, while about half of Grant's did. The Confederates were pretty poorly armed. So Grant, as well as General Sherman, who was under Grant, um, they were really taken they, they, by uh, taken by surprise by the attack by the Confederates. They did not expect an attack to happen. Um, the first skirmishes of the Battle of Shiloh started at about 5 a.m. when a Union patrol met with uh, Confederate forces. And um, the Union was surprised, like I said, but the attack by the Confederacy was really disorganized. Um, but the Confederates were able to slowly push the Union back. And the Confederate attack slowed down around noon due to Union resistance. But also because the Confederate Army was stopped to grab food left out by the Union Army because they were so hungry. Um, General Sherman proved an important stabilizing force with the Union Army during this battle. The most important part of the Union stand in this battle was at a, at a place that was nicknamed the Hornet's Nest. It was in a field near a road, and the Confederacy attacked this part of the battle over several hours, and there was anywhere from 8 to 14 charges, and they also had 50 cannons at close range just kind of concentrated on this area. 
Now, eventually the line did surrender at the hornet's nest, but it took them seven hours for the Confederates to get them to surrender. And this was huge because it bought the Union time. A major blow happened in the Confederacy when General Johnston, he personally led an attack to rally the troops. And he was successful in rallying the men, but then he was shot in the back of the knee. Um, and his, he had actually sent his doctor away to take care of um, Confederate soldiers and Union prisoners. Um, a tourniquet could have saved him, but instead he bled to death. Johnston was considered the best general the Confederates had at the time. You know, Robert E. Lee hadn't risen to prominence yet. He actually ended up becoming the highest ranked officer to be killed in the entire war on either side. And so that was a huge blow to the Confederacy. By the end of the day, the Union was able to fall back to a three-mile front with good defensive position. And they ended up again, they had some naval support and about 50 cannons at their disposal. So some of the Confederate officers believed that they kept pushing the attack until dusk instead of stopping. They could have overrun the Union. Unfortunately for them, by the next morning, General Buell had arrived to reinforce Grant. And at dawn on the second day of the Battle of Shiloh, uh, the Union had a 2-to-1 numbers advantage, and the Union attacked the Confederacy. And kind of throughout the day, they would have pushed the Confederates back. Um, Grant actually had a close call. He was hit in the sword with a bullet. Uh, didn't do any damage to him. But imagine if he would have gotten hit and killed in that battle. The Confederates eventually retreated towards Corinth. Um, Grant did not pursue because his troops were exhausted. General Buell was not happy about this. So it was, it was a big victory for um, the Union Army. But the Northern press really attacked Grant for being taken by surprise. And there's a large number of casualties that I'll talk about in a little bit here. People spread rumors that he was drunk. And actually, Buell was given credit for saving the day. People called for Lincoln to remove Grant. But he said his uh, now, um, um, I'd say important line, but a famous line where he said, I can't spare this man, he fights. So the officers with Grant that day swore that Grant wasn't drunk. They actually said he rarely, if ever, drank. Um, sure. Uh, so again, you had these rumors about him being drunk, but there's no evidence that he was actually a, a drunkard or drank at all um, when he was uh, at the head of the army or whenever he was in battle. Sherman came out a, a hero in this battle. Grant was eventually relegated second in command. Corinth did fall in May. Halleck was promoted to general-in-chief, and Grant was eventually restored, and he would play a huge role going forward. Retroactively, Grant is credited with his judgment during the Battle of Shiloh. Um, there were 23,000 casualties in this battle, and almost 2,500 men killed. So there were more casualties in this two-day battle than all American previous war casualties combined. So I want to state that again. Up until this point, you had had the American Revolution. You had had the War of 1812. You had had the Mexican-American War. Not to mention you had the, the quote-unquote Indian Wars and all these other undeclared wars. There are more casualties in this one battle than all previous war casualties combined. I'm assuming they're counting the, the major wars and the undeclared wars, but even if they're just counting the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, and the Mexican-American War, that's insane. Grant realized at the battle of Sh after Shiloh that it would not be a quick war or a one-battle war, and that it would be a long war, a battle of conquest, with many casualties, um, which was a significant thing for him to learn and would really pave his thinking uh, as he progressed throughout this war. So again, we had talked about before that a lot of people thought it was going to be a quick war. Again, McClellan was thinking it was going to be one giant battle. Grant realized after the horrors of Shiloh, that was not to be. So one of the things I, I really want to do as I'm going through the, the Civil War um, episodes of this podcast is I really want to highlight some battles that really aren't talked about, uh, aren't maybe as well known in the Civil War. I mean, there were thousands of battles, or at least there was, there was just thousands of skirmishes that happened 
in the Civil War. And there was just a, a ton of battles that happened. Um, and, and it's impossible to go through them all in, in any type of, oh, book or, or, or documentary. Um, or just history, like I said, history class. So one of the things I wanted to do each episode was go over just, just some battles that aren't as well known, but were really significant. And, and so that's what we're going to do. And so some of the early Confederate success in, in the early part of 1862 is actually in New Mexico territory, out in the real West. We just talked about U.S. Grant in the West. Well, this is in the real part of the West. Um, and so the, the Battle of Valverde occurred in February 20 to 21, 1862. This was in New Mexico. Um, and the Confederate General Henry Sibley hoped to invade New Mexico, capture Santa Fe, and then march to California to conquer it. And he left El Paso and headed to Fort Craig in New Mexico in, ho in hopes of taking that fort. They met a Union force uh, near the fort. And... Um, the opening of the, of the fight included the first and only Lancer charge of the war, which failed miserably, which is probably why they didn't do another one in the entire war. Um, the Union attempted to flank the Confederates, which left their center open, and the Confederacy attacked the center of their lines and just rotted the Union. The Union retreated to Fort Craig, and that actually left the road to Santa Fe open. Sibley actually just, instead of taking the fort, bypassed the fort, Headed to Santa Fe and actually occupied Santa Fe March on March 10th. So this was a huge Confederate victory out west, and there was concern that the Confederacy could take all of the West potentially. Um, and this led us to another battle in the West, which was the Battle of Glorieta Pass, which happened in March 26th to 28th. This is kind of this is called the Gettysburg of the West. Some historians feel that's just a little overblown, but it does have that name. Now, it was intended to be a decisive blow um, by the Confederates to break the Union possession of the West near the Rocky Mountains. Now, Confederate sympathy is actually pretty strong in New Mexico territory, as it had largely been neglected by the U.S. Uh, the Confederacy established the Confederate Arizona Territory, which included the southern halves of the Arizona and New Mexico Territory. So the Sibley, the same um, officer, sent a force over the Glorietta Pass. Now this pass was a strategic location along the Santa Fe Trail at the southern tip of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. Now control of this pass was critical in the Western Theater. This would allow an assault on Fort Union, which was a Union stronghold. Now on March 26th, the Confederacy was camped at one end of the pass, and the Union actually attacked it and had captured 50 men. Um, the Confederacy retired, but the Union attacked again. They kept going. They scattered the Confederacy. Um, the Union ended up retiring for the night. And so a good first day for the Union. Um, there, there was no fighting on the 27th, as each side got reinforcements. But on the 28th, the Union attacked again, but the Confederacy held, and then they were pushed back. The Confederacy eventually outflanked the Union, and forced them to retreat. And the Confederacy won possession of the field. It was, a, it was a huge victory for the Confederacy. And that it just kind of opened up potentially the West for the Confederacy. However, what hurt them is that in the aftermath of the battle, the Union was able to find and destroy their supply route. So again, with an army, you have supplies, um, food, you know, ammunition, whatever. But the Union was able to actually find the supply line for the Confederacy after the battle and destroyed it. It actually forced the Confederates to retreat to Santa Fe. So the Confederacy won the battle. The Union kind of won the aftermath. And it ended up being, it turned a Confederate victory into a Union victory. And this actually stopped the Confederate advance in the Southwest. And they would eventually retreat all the way back and were not able to take care of the, of the, of the West of the Southwest. And I just thought these were some interesting battles because, you know, I don't think we really hear a whole lot about what happened in the West during the Civil War. But there were battles fought out there. Uh, a few more battles happened um, in, uh, in for control of the Mississippi River, which is obviously key to General Winfield Scott's Anaconda Plan. So the first battle I want to talk about 
was the Battle of Island 10. Um, kind of a boring name. You know, I guess, though, if you're in the middle of a civil war, you probably don't have time to name every single island. So you might probably just name them by numbers. But the Battle of Island 10 occurred from February to April of 1862. And this was near the Kentucky Bend of the Mississippi River near New Madrid, Missouri. Um, the island um, actually ended up just surrendering to the Union. And this was the first time the Confederacy lost a position on the Mississippi River in battle. And it opened up Memphis. This was really overshadowed by the Battle of Shiloh. Um, but what was key in this battle was that the, the tactic of running ships past force, forts instead of stopping and trying to fire and take. Forts happened a lot more. So essentially what happened was people would bring these boats and they'd try to bombard forts from the river to um, get past them. What happened here is that they realized, you know, we can just kind of sail really fast past these forts and then they can't do anything about it. And so um, as that became more and more successful, more and more people tried it. And the strategy was used in the capture of New Orleans, which happened, which is another important um, series of battles that happened in April and May of 1862. And so there were two forts called Fort Jackson and St. Philip, and there were two forts south of New Orleans. And the forts were situated near a bend in the river that would force ships to slow down, which allowed the 177 guns of the forts to attack. Now, most of the protection for New Orleans was north of New Orleans, as that's where the Confederacy thought the attack would come. But um, instead, they came from the south. Now, these forts um, were bombarded from the river, and then there was a chain that was stretched across the river um, that made it tough for ships to get across. Now, eventually, that chain was broken, and then the Union ran through their gaps. And so, as I just talked about, they just ran as fast as they could, or ran, sailed, you get my point. Um, they ran through that chain, and it worked. And they were able to go on to New Orleans. Um, there was a little naval battle that, not little, there was a naval battle that happened where the Confederate, with the Confederacy, the Union lost one ship and the Confederacy lost 12. And so this fleet was able to run through the gap and head on to New Orleans. Um, eventually, Fort Jackson actually mutinied and surrendered on, on April 29th, and Fort St. Philip surrendered soon after that. And so New Orleans had no protection. Um, and this was huge because New Orleans was the largest city in the South. It was actually larger than the next four cities in the South combined. It was one of the great ports in the world. It was an important city. After the fall of those forts, New Orleans was basically defenseless. Um, troops and supplies were actually sent away from New Orleans. Uh, artillery and munition was sent to Vicksburg. Citizens were essentially left for themselves, or there was some officers there, and um, they really refused to surrender, so the Union had to actually occupied the city. And um, But they, the Union ended up controlling New Orleans. Um, and this was huge because this allowed the Union to, to send, uh, to occupy other towns like Baton Rouge, um, and Natchez, Natchez, I think is how you pronounce it. Um, but it was just a big blow to the Confederacy because um, this hurt them diplomatically. As Confederate agents noted that they were not as well received in London and Paris after the capture of New Orleans. So, um, and then the last kind of battle that I want to talk about that isn't maybe as well known as the Battle of Pea Ridge, which was... Uh, March 7th through 8th, that was fought near Fayetteville, Arkansas. The Confederacy hoped to capture um, Arkansas and Missouri. And this was just a battle where the Union held off an attack and then uh, then eventually beat the Confederacy. Um, and this was actually one of the few battles where the Confederacy was outnumbered, uh, or the Union was outnumbered by the Confederacy. So really, you know, we, we've talked, as I, as I really reflect upon what we've talked about so far in this episode, a lot of great Union victories. You had McClellan in the East that has close to Richmond. Um, you had Grant, had some huge battles in the West. You had the um, Union in, in the far West. <laughs> they were the actual West. 
held off the Confederate attacks, as well as the Union was able to capture New Orleans. And so you're probably thinking right now, okay, we're only at 1862. The Union is having all this success. How? Why did this war not end sooner? Well, that that that's something we'll talk about when we talk about the, the battles uh, of the latter half of 1862. But uh, before we end this episode of Doc, tell me more. I have a, a number of important people I want to talk about that um, you're going to want to know for upcoming episodes, or just some people that were important um, in uh, in the Civil War. The first one I want to talk about is John Tyler. Now, John Tyler is important because he was the 10th president of the United States from 1841 to 1845. He ascended to the presidency after William Henry Harrison died. And he kind of, he was the first one to uh, have the precedent of the vice president dies and the, or excuse me, the president dies and the vice president ascends to the, I almost said the throne, but to the presidency. Now, he was elected right before the Civil War broke out to the Virginia Secession Convention, and he presided over it. He voted for secession, and he was elected to the Confederate Provisional Congress, and he served just before his death. He was actually elected to the Confederate House, but he did not serve as he died on January 12th of what people consider a stroke. But just think about this. His death was the only presidential death not officially recognized in Washington because he was serving the Confederacy. Um, can you imagine that? Like, imagine any of our former presidents. So right now you have Jimmy Carter as a former president. Um, you have, you know, um, I think off the top of my head here, sorry. You have Bill Clinton. You have George W. Bush. You have Barack Obama. You have Donald Trump. I think that's everybody, because Reagan has died, uh, Ford's dead, George H.W. Bush is dead. But just just imagine any of those former presidents deciding to serve in for another country, and not just any country, a country that's at war with the United States. That's what happened here. And so John Tyler and so Pre- wanted a small funeral, but the Jefferson Davis, the Confederate president, made it a grand political specter. Actually, uh, draped his coffin, or his coffin was draped with the Confederate flag, and he's the only president to be buried under a non-U.S. flag. Just incredible. A former president joining um, a country that was fighting a war against the U.S. It's kind of crazy when you think about it. So there's a few generals I, I want to talk about. Three generals I want to talk about that you're going to hear more from in the rest of this series. I just want to give you some background information on them. Uh, first one I want to talk about is uh, Winfield Scott Hancock, who I talked about a little bit already. But he was born in 1824. He's actually a twin, if that matters to you. He was born on Valentine's Day in Pennsylvania, and he was named after the great general Winfield Scott. He graduated from West Point in 1844, uh, 18th out of 25. Um, he served in the Mexican-American War initially as, as on desk duty. Where he was so good at signing people up, um, signing recruits up, that his superiors didn't actually want him to go fight in the war. But he was sent to Mexico and served under Winfield Scott. I kind of like wonder if that's awkward. Like, you're named after Winfield Scott, and then you're serving for him. I mean, did they talk about that? Was it just kind of quietly awkward? I kind of want to know about that. Um, he's actually wounded and was not able to, to participate in the capture of Mexico City. He participated in part of the Third Seminole War, but didn't, but not in any of the fighting. He served in Bleeding, um, Kansas. Um, he was stationed in California at the beginning of the Civil War, and he served uh, was serving under future Confederate General Albert Johnson. Uh, he was promoted general in, 18, in September of 61 and given his own command. As I mentioned, he, he learned the nickname Hancock the Superb in the Peninsula Campaign. And he's going to be part of some many more consequential battles in the Civil War. But Winfield Scott Hancock, someone to pay attention to. Another one is Nathan Bedford Forrest. Um, he was born in 1821 in Tennessee. Um, he was a very successful businessman, planter, and slaveholder. He's worth over $1.5 million at the end of the Civil War. Extremely skilled swordsman and rider. He enlisted in the Confederacy in June of 1861. He was commissioned as a lieutenant colonel and raised a battalion of mountain rangers. 
He was part of the Battle of Fort Donaldson and helped 4,000 soldiers break through the lines and escape. Fought in Shiloh, he was wounded with a bullet. With that, um, he was shot at close range and the bullet almost went to his spine. It was removed a week later with no anesthesia. Holy cow, that's crazy. You know, I stubbed my toe and it hurts. I can't imagine getting a bullet pulled near my spine with no anesthesia. But anyways, he's going to be an important person for the Confederacy going forward. Uh, the last general I want to talk about is William Tecumseh Sherman, who I've mentioned a couple times in this episode. Uh, he was born in 1820 in Ohio. Um, members of his family included judges and politicians. Ended up marrying his foster sister. He was appointed to West Point at the age of 16, graduated in 1840, saw action in the Second Seminole War, which is in uh, Florida. Uh, he was, um, during the Mexican-American War, he served on desk duty in California. Um, he accompanied the military governor to confirm the discovery of gold. He eventually resigned and became a banker. His bank failed in the Panic of 1857. He tried law but had no success. He eventually um, accepted the job as superintendent of the Louisiana State Seminary of Learning and Military Academy, which is now LSU. A lot better name, a lot shorter. Good job there. Um, he was not an abolitionist, and he actually expressed some sympathy for Southern Southerners in the defense of their system. However, after succession, he stated, and this is a, a long quote, but I just want you to take in, in, take note that at the beginning of the Civil War, most people thought it was going to be a quick war and it was going to be over within months. And so, so many people signed up because they didn't want to miss it. But here is what William Tecumseh Sherman said at the beginning or when succession happened. He said, quote, you people of the South don't know what you are doing. This country will be drenched in blood, and God only knows how it will end. It is all folly, madness, a crime against civilization. You people speak so lightly of war. You don't know what you're talking about. War is a terrible thing. You mistake to the people of the North. They are a peaceable people, but an earnest people, and they will fight too. They are not going to let this country be destroyed without a mighty effort to save it. Besides, where are your men in appliances of war to contend against them? The North can make a steam engine, locomotive, or railway car. Hardly a yard of cloth or a pair of shoes can you make. You are rushing into war with one of the most powerful, ingeniously mechanical, and determined people on earth, right at your doors. You are bound to fail. Only in your spirit and determination are you prepared for war. And all else you are totally unprepared with a bad cause to start with. Interesting there. At first you will make headway, but as your limited resources begin to fail, shut out from the markets of Europe as you will be, your cause will begin to wane. If, you, if your people will but stop and think, they must see in the end that you will surely fail. Holy cow. He, like, just before the war started, <laughs> summed up exactly how the Civil War would go in the next four years. So, brilliant man. He resigned from um, uh, his superintendentship. He went north. He was commissioned as a colonel in May of 61. He distinguished himself at Bull Run, but really began to doubt himself. He was eventually promoted to Brigadier General. He was put on leave in November and was considered unfit for duty. He actually contemplated suicide, but he recovered by December. He provided logistical support in the Battle of Fort Donaldson, and he was assigned to work for Grant. You'd see these two pair up a lot. He played a key role in the Battle of Shiloh, counterattack by the Union, was wounded twice and promoted to Major General. And again, later on in the Civil War, he would prove to be one of the more consequential generals for the Union and just in U.S. history. So just a few generals that I wanted you to know, um, as, you, as I'm going to talk about a lot of those guys going forward. And kind of one last stat I wanted to mention here. So from January to June 1st of 1862, there were 32 battles. Um, remember that there was, 
they're ranked by from class A to class D. Class A is, is, is the biggest, most significant battles. There are actually eight class A battles. The Union won um, seven of them. There were 13 class B battles. The Union won seven of those and tied four. There are seven class C battles, three won on each side and one tie. Um, four class D battles, one won by the Union, three ties. So the Union were highly successful in 1862. And the Union had the edge, they made some significant gains, but the war is going to change in the second half of 1862. Um, and, and a lot of this is due to the work done by a couple of generals for the Confederacy named Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. So in this episode, we recap the first half of 1862. We talked about some great Union victories. We talked about some great Union um, generals, which is generals from both ends, but General Grant, General McClellan. We talked about the state of the war. And things are looking up for the Union. In the next episode, we're going to look at the second half of 1862 and see how things change. So I thank you so much for listening to this episode. A little bit shorter than kind of some of my other episodes, but um, I think that's the most important information you need to know from the first six months of 1862. And so I'll be back to you in about two weeks for the next episode. And again, thank you so much for listening to Doc Tell Me More.